0: Last and last week, we posed five crucial questions about faith. And to briefly review those questions, they began with a very basic one, obviously, what is faith? And we let the inspired writer of Hebrews answer that for us. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. 1. And we elaborated upon that. Our second question was, how important is faith? And we again let the inspired writer of Hebrews answer in Hebrews eleven six. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But then we ask this third very important question, and that is, does all faith please God? Does all faith please God? And we let the inspired writer James answer that, with his statement in James 2:19, where he wrote, You believe there's one God? You do well. The demons believe and tremble. In other words, you believe there's one God? Well, that's all well and good, but that is not sufficient because even the demons have that kind of faith. Therefore, we know that not all faith pleases God. And then we set out to learn by our fourth question, what kind of faith pleases God? And we let James answer from the greatest treatise one could find in the New Testament on the subject of faith, James 2, beginning at verse 14 through verse 24. And we saw that indeed, faith was more than feeling, that faith must move us forward, that faith must bear fruit, that faith must look to the future and that faith reaches its fruition in death. And then our final question last week was, can faith be forfeited? And again, we let Paul answer from First Timothy 1, 19 and 20. Having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymeneus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. They are those who had forfeited their faith, and Paul disciplined them. As we are to lovingly discipline those who have turned their back upon thee, faith, once for all delivered to the saints. One other passage we noted in 2 Timothy 2:16 through 18, again from the pen of Paul. But shun profane and idle babblings, he writes to Timothy, for they will increase to more ungodliness... And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past. And then notice this, he says, and they overthrow the faith of some. Faith indeed can be forfeited. Faith can be and tragically has been overthrown by many. And faith is also misunderstood and misapplied tragically by so many in the religious world today, who seek to affirm that faith alone saves. How can we help those who sincerely believe that salvation is by faith alone? In The second part of our two-part lesson on faith, today we look at five ways faith is used in scripture. We've looked at five crucial questions concerning faith, and now we look at five ways faith is used in Scripture. And let me suggest that if indeed we will distinguish among the five different ways faith is used in Scripture, we can avoid misapprehensions and misapplications concerning faith. Misapprehensions and misapplications that will cost us our souls if we do not properly understand and apply what saving faith is according to the Scriptures. It's that crucial. It's that important. And so in this lesson today, I want us to briefly examine five ways faith is used in Scripture. Faith or belief at times, as it's referred to, of course. And distinguish among those five ways. And as we do, help us to see clearly the kind of faith that truly pleases God. The first of the five ways I'd like for us to think about is a way in which faith is used in scripture that has absolutely no application to you or to me today at all. It's a past situation in terms of the application of faith. It is what we might call miraculous faith or the miraculous gift of faith. During the time when miraculous gifts were being dispensed At a time before this book, the New Testament, was in its final and complete form, there was a need for certain miraculous gifts so that the church, the early church, in its infancy could function. We have all that we need now to function because we have that faith once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude writes in Jude 3. The system of faith has been deposited for us upon the pages of Holy Writ. But during the time of miraculous gifts, one of those gifts was the gift of faith. But it's obviously not the ordinary faith that all of us must possess in order to please God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 beginning, Paul writes, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. The context here is miraculous gifts of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 all deal in some way with the miraculous gifts that were available to the early church, which ended when that which is perfect came, that which was complete or whole, that which I hold in my hand. And that's 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13 in that context. But here, these gifts are enumerated. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, then verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit. Then he goes on to another, gifts of healing. So in the context in which all these gifts are enumerated, faith is one of them. It cannot be the ordinary faith that we are to possess, and so it had to be a special faith that evidenced itself in visible results and allowed certain ones to, to do certain things by that kind of faith like move mountains, perhaps, as the Lord said. In other words, to do things that were miraculous. You remember in Matthew chapter 17, if you look there, in Matthew 17, there was a situation where the Lord Lord healed an individual that the disciples had been unable to hear, heal, rather. And so... This man brought his son to the Lord, who was an epileptic, as the New King James renders it. He said, He suffers severely. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and he came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Well, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast him out? So Jesus said to him, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. The context here is the kind of faith that they were enabled to exhibit miraculously, but they had to stir up those gifts, as Paul once wrote to Timothy and told him to stir up the gift that was in him. They had to stir up that gift. But the gift itself is called, as we've already seen in 1 Corinthians 12, faith. An an obvious, miraculous context in which that kind of faith was available then, not available now, and was needed then because we didn't have this as we do now. Let me give you one other example of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As we go back again to that context, chapters 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians, where miraculous gifts are under consideration. And in that context, in the great chapter on love, as it is so often called, and rightfully so, but it's also a chapter that deals with miraculous gifts, in 1 Corinthians 13, beginning at verse 1, Paul writes, "...though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am become as sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, And though I have all faith, what kind of faith, Paul? So that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Again, that statement is a statement about a faith that is no longer available because it's no longer needed, but one of the miraculous gifts. So that is one way of five ways in which faith is used in Scripture. So when I see that and understand the context, I realize that has no application to me today. But then there's a second of five ways faith is used in Scripture, and that is to describe Christianity itself, the body of faith or the system of faith, which is synonymous with Christianity, the system of faith. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, the great seven ones are enumerated there, and among them is the faith. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beginning of verse 1, Paul writes, beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Then he says, beginning of verse 4, there is one body, that's the church, and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one faith, one system of faith, one body of faith. He goes on, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So, there, faith is obviously used to describe the system of faith. We have already alluded to Jude chapter 3, I mean verse 3 of the one chapter uh, book of Jude. What does he say? Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for what? Faith? No. Faith? No. For the faith, significant there, the article is, because he's talking about the system of faith, Christianity. The faith, which was what? Once for all, the idea there is once for all time delivered to the saints. We have it once for all time delivered. There is no further revelation. And this is the system of faith, which is Christianity. One other passage will suffice to support this point this use of faith. And that's Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, where Paul is contrasting one system, the old system, the law of Moses, with another system, the new system, which is described here as faith. In verse 23 he writes, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Now, you stop there and you realize, even though the article is not translated here, it's not here... Before faith came, you know from the context that the contrast is between the law and the faith, the system of faith. Because they had faith under the Old Testament, didn't they? They believed. So obviously Paul is using faith here to describe the same things you did and and other passages do as the system of faith. So before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Then he does say, kept for what? The faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. The whole context there clearly indicates the contrast between the system of the law of Moses and the system we're under now and for all time to come, which is the gospel or the faith, Christianity. So that's the second way faith is used in Scripture. The third way is a matter of personal conviction or we might say a matter of conscience. Faith is used in that sense as well in Romans chapter 14. In Romans chapter 14 the Apostle Paul discusses matters that were matters of indifference. In other words, they were neither right nor wrong, but to some, because of their background and coming out of idolatry, they might have a conscience issue with certain things like the eating of meats that had been offered to idols. There were other brethren who were stronger brethren who did not have that conscience issue and they might be able to eat of that meat without any uh, problem of conscience whatsoever. But what Paul deals with is that we need to be considerate of one another and patient with one another, and we obviously must not cause someone to do something that violates his conscience in one of these matters of indifference and cause him to sin by so doing. And so that's the context in which the word faith is used, in that context regarding personal confidence or conviction about doing something. And if I can't do it with that confidence and conviction and faith, then I should not violate my conscience and you should not force me to violate my conscience. But I should not also cause problems in the church over it either. We should all be patient with one another in that matter. So we're dealing with matters of indifference or expediency here and how we should approach one another and treat one another in these matters. Now with that as a brief background, then in Romans 14 and verse 22, after he discusses some of these things, Paul asks this question, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Now stop right there. Do you have faith? Then he says what? If you have faith, have it to yourself before God. I know immediately this cannot be faith in Jesus Christ. (laughs) This cannot be my faith in Jesus Christ that he's talking about. He's talking about within the context, my confidence or my faith about eating a certain meat or engaging in a certain practice that is not wrong in itself, but because of my scruples about it, conscience-wise, it would be wrong to me, and if I enter into it, I'm going to sin. That's what the context indicates here. But it cannot be faith in Jesus Christ that's under discussion, because where in Scripture am I ever told to keep my faith in Christ to myself? I'm told just the opposite. I'm told to tell others about my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm told to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. So therefore, this is obviously not faith in Christ. It's an unusual use of the word faith or belief regarding these matters of indifference discussed in Romans chapter 14. Now, he goes on, the latter part of verse 22 and on into verse 23, the last verse saying, Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But what if he can't approve? He who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. What kind of faith? Confidence that he can do this. Faith in that matter of conscience. Then he says, for whatever is not from faith is sin. So these are matters about which we must be very careful not to violate our conscience in these matters, but this is an unusual use of faith regarding conviction Matters of conscience. So, we've looked at three of five ways. The fourth, the fourth way in which faith or belief is used is as a condition of salvation. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. The words of Jesus in Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Obviously, there are two conditions of salvation that are set forth in that statement. He who believes, that's one condition, and is baptized, another condition, shall be saved. B plus B equals S. Belief plus baptism equals salvation. So belief there is used as one condition of salvation. Now, not all the conditions of salvation are mentioned in that same verse. In terms of enumerated, repentance is not specifically mentioned there. Confession is not specifically mentioned there. But we don't have a verse in scripture where every single step in the plan of salvation is all mentioned in one verse. We have to take the sum, S-U-M, of God's word. Tragically, there are those who spell that S-O-M-E today and take some of it rather than the sum of it. But we must take the sum of it, the totality of it. And so faith or belief is a condition of salvation. In Romans chapter 10, and verse 10: For with the heart one believes to righteousness in the direction of righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. There you have belief mentioned with confession. In Mark 16:16, 16, 16, you have belief mentioned with baptism. When we put it all together as we must and should, we have belief, repentance, confession, and baptism leading to salvation from sin. But belief is used as a condition among other conditions. But there are those, in fact, tragically, a vast number in the religious world, who tell us that faith is the only condition of salvation, and that the Bible teaches, according to them, salvation by faith alone. Why do they make that contention? They make that contention because they fail to distinguish, I'm afraid, among the five ways faith is used and especially our final way in which faith is used. And that is in what we would call the comprehensive or the inclusive use of the word faith or belief. In other words, where that word is used to obviously comprehend or to include every other condition of salvation that is elsewhere clearly stated in Scripture. Where do we find such instances of that use? How about the golden text of the Bible, as it is so often called? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that is a passage that becomes a proof text for faith-only advocates tragically As they seek to tell us, there it is. There it is. There is faith-only salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes, there's the word belief, there's the word faith. And therefore, faith is all that is essential. But we would pose this question to the faith-only advocate. And that question would be, does one have to repent in order to be pleasing to God? In other words, can one say, I believe in God and go about his merry wicked way, so to speak, and indulge in all the pleasures of sin for a season, as long as he uh, gives mental agreement to the fact that he believes that God is and that Jesus Christ is his son, but he does in no way have to change his life at all? Would the faith-only advocates contend that he could do that? I think not. But then the question that would follow that for them would be, well, where is the word repent in John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal or everlasting life. If you believe a person has to repent, why isn't it mentioned there? It is. Not specifically mentioned with the word repent, but it's there along with confession and it's there along with baptism and it's all right there in one word used comprehensively and that word is believes because the Bible very clearly uses that word in that way time and time and time again and all we need do is sincerely and honestly recognize that to understand and to avoid to understand what kind of faith it is that saves us and to avoid the misapprehension, the misapplication, the tragic misapplication that so many labor under today who contend for faith only. What about Acts 15, verse 7? As Peter rehearses the salvation that came to the first Gentile convert Cornelius and his household, he reviews their conversion. He reviews their conversion, and as a part of that, verse 7 says this in Acts 15. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Who's he talking about? Cornelius and his household. Go back to Acts 10 and see what Cornelius and his household did. That Peter is referring to here. They heard the word. They believed. They obviously repented. They must have confessed. That's clearly taught. But we know specifically it is said they were baptized. But here Peter simply says. They heard the word of the gospel. And believed. Then look down two verses later at verse 9. And made no distinction he says concerning Cornelius still again. And made no distinction between us and them. Purifying their hearts by Faith. They heard the word of the gospel and believed. Their hearts were purified by faith. How does Peter obviously use the term faith and believe? The terms faith and belief there. Obviously in the inclusive sense. Because we see when we look at the account of their conversion, what they did to be converted. Were they converted by faith alone? Absolutely not. And yet Peter, in referring back to it, just simply uses the word belief and faith. To what? To include every other condition of salvation. That is very obviously the case, isn't it? Well, then go with me to Acts chapter 16, verses 31 through 34. And this is the Philippian jailer's conversion. And you remember that in verse 30, he brought them, Paul and Silas, out after the earthquake that had opened the doors of the prison The jailer was about to kill himself thinking the prisoners had escaped and he would be responsible and the Romans were going to kill him anyway so he'd just do it before they could. And Paul said, do thyself no harm, we're all here. And he brought them out, verse 30, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And here's the verse you'll read on many a sign passing denominational buildings throughout our land. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And I've seen that passage noted on sign after sign. And I know, based upon knowing what the belief is of that particular religious group, how they are interpreting Acts 16.31. They are interpreting it to mean faith alone. But we must read on. They said, believe... And he didn't know yet what to believe. And so verse 32 logically says they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And then verse 33 says he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and immediately he and all his family were baptized. What had they done that caused him to want to be baptized? They spoke the word of the Lord to him, obviously, back at verse 31. And then verse 34 is a very critical verse. Listen to it, now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced having believed in God with all his household. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe, now we're going to tell you what to believe, now you've done it and now you've believed, that's exactly what the text tells us and illustrates for us very beautifully and conclusively this comprehensive or inclusive use of faith. Romans thirteen eleven, final passage we will note in this regard from the pen of the Apostle Paul. And in Romans 13 and verse 11, he wrote these words, And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer, Than when we first believed. Now our salvation is nearer than when we first what? Heard the word, believed it, repented, confessed, and were baptized? Yes. But he just all summarizes it in one word belief. When I read about what Saul of Tarsus, who became the apostle Paul, did to, to be saved, what was it? And now why are you waiting? Ananias said to him, Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And he did just that. And now writing later, he says, Now it's high time to awake out of sleep, for salvation is nearer than when we first, what? Believed. Using belief to describe the entire process of obedience to the gospel. Oh, and yes, we could take this verse... Verse 11 of Romans 13 saying and say it is high time for so many to awake out of sleep. To awake out of the sleep that says salvation is by faith alone. However sincere they are in that sleep, it is nonetheless a sleep from which we must awake if we're to have any hope of eternal salvation because that's what the Bible says. The New Testament clearly teaches. It has been summarized so often by so many gospel preachers in this way, and rightfully so. The faith that saves is the faith that obeys. What about your faith this morning? Do you believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? You must or die in your sins, Jesus said, as recorded in John eight twenty four. Have you repented of your sins? That is, change your mind about the sin that is in your life and determined to be away from that sin. Jesus said, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, Luke 13:3, and again at verse 5. And so it can't be faith alone, as we've often said, because he says repent or perish, believe or die in your sins, repent or perish. But he also says, if you'll confess me before my Father... Or if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me, I will deny you. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And yes, as we've already noted, it was Jesus who so clearly said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. You know how the faith-only advocates would have to characterize that passage. As I mentioned earlier, it's B plus B equals S but the faith only advocate would have to characterize it this way B equals S plus B belief equals salvation then baptism but Jesus didn't give it that way Jesus said B plus B equals S belief plus baptism equals salvation and therefore Without that final step of faith, baptism, I cannot reach the blood of Christ, the only substance that can cleanse me from sin, because it's only in baptism that God has chosen to apply that blood. Have you had the blood of Jesus applied to cleanse your soul from sin? Based upon your belief, have you repented, confessed, and have you been baptized, buried in water where the blood of Christ awaits to cleanse you? to allow you to rise, to walk in newness of life, as Paul wrote in Romans 6, 3 and 4, as the Lord himself adds you to the church, the church we read about in the New Testament, the pattern for which is clearly seen and is being followed here and in so many places around this world today, thanks be to God, you can be a part of that kingdom, the church, added thereto by the Lord himself upon your sweet obedience to his will. And if you've known that sweet obedience and the joy and the peace that flow from it, but you know that joy and peace are no longer yours because you no longer walk where you once walked, come home in repentance as we stand to sing to encourage